You're listening to the Boozeworks Podcast. This podcast is a service of Boozeworks Consulting, a full-service craft alcohol consulting firm. And now the host of the Boozeworks Podcast, Devin Mills. All right. Well, let's welcome Stephen Golden to the pro- uh, program. He is the proprietor and uh, distiller here at Golden Moon Distilling. Uh, Stephen, welcome into the show. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. So you are one of the most interesting distilleries that I've run across uh, over the years. You guys have taken a lot, and you in particular, have taken a lot of older recipes and kind of given them new life. Uh, it seems, and please correct me if I'm wrong, you guys specialize in absinthe and creme de violet and a lot of more unusual spirits in this that's, industry. That's what we're known for. And and and, and just to be clear, uh, we don't just take old recipes and recreate them. Mm-hmm. Um there's only one recipe that we make that we don't consider our own and that we don't have that we haven't developed ourselves. Okay. Uh, we use old recipes for inspiration. Uh, the one product that, that I would say really isn't our recipe is our Mer de Picon. Um, and even that product has a lot of our own fingerprints on it. Mm. Um, in that particular case, we found distiller's notes from 1851 from the original distillery. Uh, it's sort of a lost product. They haven't made that formula in commercial production since the 1880s. Um, I acquired those notes by accident while buying some other uh, distilling uh, books and distiller's notes um, in, in the south of France and realized what I had. And I happened to be sitting at my reading desk in my house. And on the shelf above it were two pre-1880 bottles of Picon. And I suddenly realized that I had a French journeyman distiller circa 1850 working notes from the original distillery. And I was looking at two bottles that had been produced using that formula from the original distillery. And I went, I could recreate this. Now, it's one of my favorite products. People love it. But we even put on the back label the entire history. And I don't consider, despite the fact it took me two years of R&D, I don't consider that my own formula. I consider that Gatillon Picon's formula with one small deviation um, because there's an ingredient that's viewed as a protocarcinogen and we can't use it. Um, and it took a little bit of tweaking to be able to, to to recreate that flavor profile with other botanicals, but not much because mm. I'd already gone down that road. Um and it's a really cool product, but everything else that we make here at Golden Moon is our own processes, our own formulas, using the techniques and the types of ingredients and the types of production methodology, et cetera, that uh, historical distillers would have used. And I think that separates us a lot from what modern distillers do. Um, one of my biggest frustrations, and I'll just lay this out here. Uh, is that modern distillers, especially smaller, less experienced distillers, have a tendency to rush out by the 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 fanciest still they can buy with the mo- the biggest column and the most plates, and they over engineer and over rectify the spirit, and it really gives them spirits that are flat and and you know don't have a lot of complexity, etc. Um, the engineering and science of distillation is the optimization of the distillation process. But the art of what we do as distillers is the ability to effectively manage the inefficiencies of the process so that you get a spirit that has character. Absolutely. And I I think that's why we're seeing uh, a lot of trends back to simpler pot stills and uh, 
not a, not a huge trend, but definitely away from the the combination pot column. You know, this still does everything. I mean, I, I, I we're doing this big expansion. Um, the only pot column combinations I have are a couple a couple of ones from 1979, one from ni- 1981. Jacob Carlstills I pulled out of a distillery in Germany, mm-hmm. and the only thing I'm going to use those for is is a black trap molasses rum, because I want that extra rectification. Mm-hmm. And if I do it on a non-column head pot still, it's it's a triple distillation. And I'm hoping I can get to a double distillation once I rehab those stills. But we're going to see what happens. I may go back to, to the brandy still and just run it three times because it tastes really freaking good on that third pass. Uh, I, I it, It's terribly inefficient. And when you're, you're building a large distillery, inefficiencies brutalize the, the bottom line. So oh, I, I, I can understand why you want to. I'm good at inefficiencies. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's we're we're keeping nine antique stills in in the new production facility, and none of them are over. Well, I take that back. Eight of them are under 150 liters. One of them is under 200 liters, um, and then we'll have the big stills, four of which are a thousand liters, um, and two of which are 2,500 liters. That. That you're trying that is so amazing. I can't wait to see it, you know, and see how it kind of goes. You know, we make a lot of weird products. Today, um, counting our found spirit line, and we do we do make two products that are found spirits. Uh, they're marketed under the Gunfighter brand as opposed to the Golden Moon brand because we do not distill them. But we do heavily influence them by, by doing cast, secondary cast conditioning. Um, but other than that, we're making 17 products that we distill ourselves. Um, some of those are fruit or grain to glass. Some of those are, are redistillation over clean, neutral spirit. Um, there's a lot of distillers that will say that that's cheating, but historically both gin and absinthe, uh, and that's the background as far as my botanical distilling where I came from. Historically, those distilleries never made their own base spirit. They always bought their base spirit. In fact, if you go to the largest gin producer on the planet, which is beef eaters, um, if, you know someone that will give you the private tour, uh, which I've done. Um, I'm, a, I'm a warden in London's Gin Guild, and Desmond Payne, their master distiller, is a founding warden in London's Gin Guild. Um, so Desmond took me on, 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 on the industry tour, if you will. There's an entire gallery of Carterhead stills that date from – that are 100 years old. Hmm, and that awesome. are still maintained that aren't used. And the purpose for these stills was at the time because it was against British law for a gin producer to, to make spirit from scratch. Hmm. They had to buy their spirit, but the spirit wasn't as clean as the company wanted it. So they would actually redistill spirit they bought from somebody else in these Carterhead stills. Hmm. And then they would use it to make their gin. Once they were able to source neutral spirit that was as clean as they wanted it, then they just went into the secondary secondary distillation. And at that point, they do essentially the same process we do, and they, they do an instill maceration, redistillation. Um, in their case, they do a double shot, which means they add another equal amount of neutral spirit. We do a single shot. Mm-hmm. They deproof and they bottle. Um, you know, when you look at how they produce, they're producing the same way a small craft distillery produces. Not all big gin producers are, but beef eaters is, um, which is really amazing to see considering the scale that they're working at. <laughs> yeah, scales uh, slightly different. So with these, I'm trying to pick a good starting point here. With all the antique stills that you're using, mm-hmm. um, what do you run into trying to rehab them and turn them back into functional stills? How are they 
different or or better than what were what you could buy new? Well, that's like four questions in one. So let's I know start, let's start with, I don't know where to start. Um, there's certain types of stills that I like. Uh, the old uh, stills that were developed in the Black Forest region of Germany, um, companies like Friedrich Kleinschmidt of Schingen, for example, um, which are sort of the great grandfathers of the modern Carls and Bavarian Holsteins and Mueller's, etc. Um, I really enjoy working on those stills. They're water jacket stills primarily as opposed to steam jacket. Um, they're less efficient. Uh, they've got different types of condensers. Um, most of them don't have true, true columns on them. Um, and I actually prefer the older German style of side mounted reflux condenser or expansion chamber. Um, I think it gives the spirit more, more character. Uh, but a lot of these stills we're pulling out of junkyards or we're pull, pulling out of interior design shops where they've been neutralized. Oh, um, okay. So I'll get stills with no condenser and we'll have to rebuild a condenser for it. I'll get stills that have been, that have had, um, uh, various parts drilled so they can no longer function. Um, I've got one still we're, we're about to rehab that someone took a pickaxe to. <laughs> and um, it's worth it to me to try and get this still back into its original configuration because the character of the still is so important. Mm-hmm. And we've prototyped and developed commercial products on these small stills. And so one of the easiest ways to scale uh, especially heavier herbal or botanical products like like heavier gins, like genepes, like absinthe, um, changing a still is going to change the product. And so the easiest way to scale is find another still that's identical mm. or find a still that's similar and reconfigure it to be as close to identical as possible, which is what we're doing. That makes sense. Um, and then run these small antique stills in clusters where one stillman will run two, three, four, five, six stills at the same time instead of one big still. Mm-hmm. But they'll all be charged at the same time. They'll all be fired at the same time. They'll run through at the same temperature with the same controls at the same time. They'll finish at the same time, and the product will, if not be identical, be really, really freaking close. Well, and once you blended them all back together, then, you're going to create kind of a middle baseline based on right. whatever variation each right. individual and I mean, still these, has. These are all handcrafted products. We're pretty damn consistent at this point with the products we produce, but these are natural products. You're always going to get some variation. And even with the big distilleries that have all the modern process controls, et cetera, um, I mean, I've got friends that work for some of the biggest gin producers in the world. Um, As I said, I was the first American warden in London's Gin Guild. Everybody that's anybody in big gin is there. Um, I've been to their distilleries and I've tasted and smelled. There's always going to be some sort of natural variation uh, because we're dealing with natural herbs. We're dealing with seasonalities. We're dealing with, you know, changes in ambient te- temperature mm-hmm. within the room the still's operating in. And all of these things have a little bit of an effect. Mm-hmm. The object is for a large scale production is to be as consistent as possible. And, you know, even on these small stills, we're able to do that. Um, it's a lot of work. Um, when you're talking about trying to be as consistent as possible, particularly with botanicals, each growing season is so mm-hmm. different. Uh, I know a lot of the larger genuine manufacturers are actually taking individual botanicals and, and they'll blend off, you know, their juniper in one run, their citrus in another, and then blend on the backside between the different distilled there's, gins. There's a lot of people that, are, that, that feel that's the right way to do things. I'm not going to say it's the wrong way. It's one way. Mm-hmm. Um, I have some friends that do that that make beautiful gins. Well, Todd Leopold does that. Mm-hmm. He, I love his products. Um, 
I take a very different approach, and that's okay. There's really no one right right way to do this. Well, how do you control that variation without being able to say today, you know, my orange is more orangey, so I'm going to use less of it? By the seat of my pants, I hate to say it's all about smell (laughs) and taste, and it's not really that different in the big guys. I Mm -hmm. mean, so um, my friend Ann Brock is is now the master distiller at Bombay, Mm -hmm. and they've got a huge QC lab, but she and her distillers will walk out to those stills and they'll actually they'll actually taste and smell mm-hmm. distillate through the run. And they're one of the biggest brands on the planet. Yeah. You know, there's actually you go you go into the in, into the into the areas where, you know, where where the stills uh, the spirits going into the into the spirit safe. And you'll actually see a little tasting glass with a glass lid on it in every one of those next to that spirit safe and someone will walk in several times in the run and they'll do a smell and they'll make adjustments. The reality is that this is something that there's no way, there's always a way, but there's no real effective way other than using the most sensitive instruments ever created on the planet Earth and those are the tastes of sense and smell in, in, in the human body. Um to to do this, I mean, these are things that people are gonna gonna drink. It's it's liquid food, and that's why it's so incredibly important that distillers understand how to effectively nose first and taste second mm-hmm. spirits. And you know, I do a lot of training. I do a fair amount of consulting. It frustrates the hell out of me when I meet people that come to me, especially with like absinthe. Mm. I want to make an absinthe, and the first question I ask is, well. How much absinthe have you tasted and smelled? And the answer is oftentimes, well, very little or none at all. And if you haven't tasted and smelled and developed your palate, you've got no business making the spirit because you don't know what you're making. Mm -hmm. If you've only tasted and smelled a little bit, you really need to go out and develop your palate because that palate is your most, most important tool, that sense of smell, that sense of taste. Big distillery, little distillery, yeah. it doesn't matter. No, that, that's absolutely true. And it's, it's interesting. As I tend to stick to the spirits that that I know um, because I know what I like, and it's easier to modify recipes when I say, oh, well, I don't like this much rye in, in here, so I'm going to dial back my rye because I can taste the rye in the whiskey. Uh, and so it's interesting carrying that over to some like absinthe that, to be fair, I've had maybe three different types of abs- mm-hmm. absinthe and I spend too much time at your bar, so the vast majority of it's been yours. Um, Thank you for that, by the way. <laughs> um, uh, I guess let, let's circle back to something you mentioned earlier, which I find utterly fascinating. So you, you found an old recipe on the, the pecan. Right. Um, and some of that was no longer on the grass list. Uh, I've managed to come across some old recipes over the years. Well, so there's a couple of challenges. First of all, with the pecan, there's one botanical that is not on the on the grass. Do you mind list. mentioning which one it I is? I will, but okay. so let's explain for your listeners what mm-hmm. grass is. Grass stands for generally recognized as safe food substance. Mm-hmm. And so FDA regulations have a food substance and a food additive list, both which are considered grass. And there are a lot of things that aren't on the list um, because they've never been tested. And there's some things that get kicked off the list for legitimate reasons. And there's some things that get kicked off the list because of one sort of odd study that indicated that one subspecies of something might be bad for you. Okay. Especially if somebody uh, connects it to cancer. Mm. 
So in the case of pecan, there is a substance called calamus root. Mm-hmm. You can buy it at most botanical wholesalers. You, your holistic healers, your herb stores, they all sell it. Mm-hmm. There was a study, I believe, done in the 1950s, if I'm not mistaken. I may be wrong on that. Don't well. quote me on that. <laughs> so, but there was a study done. It's what's called a mouse study. Which meant that mice were fed high concentrations of calamus root and specifically one subspecies from the Indian subcontinent of calamus root. And they developed tumors. So FDA classified calamus root as a protocarcinogen and it disappeared from the gross list. And as a result, any product that carried calamus root was banned in the U.S. and now is banned in Europe. Sure. But the reality is if you look at the science behind this one banning, it's very, very, very narrow in the research. Sure. And there hasn't been a whole lot of other research that would contradict it because to be blunt, there's not a lot of money to be made on calamus root in big business. Mm-hmm. There are ways around it. And, of course, with our pecan, um, I was able to mimic the flavor so well that uh, a gentleman that, that is one of the top spirit historians um, in the world looked at me when he tasted our pecan and said, there's calamus in this. And I said, no, there's not. He goes, I can taste the calamus. And I said, no, you really can't. <laughs> and I won't tell you who that is because he's a competitor. <laughs> How does that process work of, of taking uh, a desired flavor uh, and kind of what what is you, what do you go through in your mind when you're trying to well, I, look at, at substitutes or replacement processes? I take a look at what the flavor profile of the of the individual botanical is in a distillate, and then in my own mind I break it down into subcomponents. Um, uh, typically by flavor only. A couple of times I've looked at looked at the chemical makeup, which is the sort of the modern scientific way to do this. But very often I will do it just by a, a single botanical distillate and then tasting. And then I will, will go out and look at other botanicals I've worked with and start experimenting. And I will come up with one or more botanicals that either, either alone or together will have a close enough taste. Now, there's another thing that bears mentioning, and that is that a lot of the ingredients that, that many people say are just no longer available are actually available. They just have different names now. Mm-hmm. And probably the most common one of those is star anise. <laughs> so historically, especially in your old French uh, distilling books from the 17 and 1800s, it's referred to as baiting. Hmm. Okay. And so you have a lot of absinthe producers that will argue that historically star anise was never used in absinthe. But I've got recipes from the 1850s that show baiting being used in absinthe. How do you track the name of an ingredient, particularly over, you know, 100, 150 years? Research. I mean, it's it's everything from looking at old recipe books to uh, internet research to going to libraries, et cetera. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've, I've spent time, uh, for example, at the National Perfume Library in Grasse, France. Mm-hmm. And gone in and done documentary research on botanicals because botanicals are also used in perfume. And so that library has some research materials, assuming you can read archaic French, um, which I can't, by the way. Um, <laughs> I can pick through it, but, uh, you know, you, you find a good translator, you get a good dictionary, and, and then it's just a lot of scratching your head and experimentation. When you're, <clears throat> when you're matching these flavors, uh, are you finding – 
that there's a difference when you macerate versus when you distill? I mean, because obviously the still is pulling off just components of that maceration. So are you trying so, to match? So when you're making botanical liquors and liqueurs, um, and when I train distillers, this is what I go through. The distiller has a variety of tools in their toolkit. Um, you have a cold maceration. You have a digestion, which is a maceration under heat, and that can be short or long. Um, you have a percolation. Um, and then you have um, a, a maceration followed by distillation or redistillation. Um, and then you have vapor distillation. And anything else are really subsets of these techniques. Mm-hmm. And each one of these techniques is going to give you a little different result with the botanical. So as a distiller, you need to figure out which one of these is going to give you the right concentration of essential oils and conjugars in your final spirit. Mm -hmm. So, for example, um, if you look at Hendrix Gin, Hendrix Gin does a variety of different things that they then blend together. Some botanicals are are macerated in still and then redistilled. Mm -hmm. Some are distilled using vapor distillation. And then there's one flavor input where they're doing they're doing an actual pre development of of an extract and then adding that in. Um, it's a complex process, but it's a process that gives them the result that Leslie, their distiller, wants. Uh-huh. And she's freaking brilliant, and she's cool as hell, and I love her product. But it's a pro a, a process that I, I wouldn't have gone down that rabbit hole if it were me developing the product. But it wouldn't be the same product. Because each distiller sort of has their own comfort zone. You know, when I'm out at the bar, very often I'll buy her product because I like her product. Mm-hmm. Um, I do the same with Todd Leopold's product. Uh, I do the same with Lance Winter's product. Mm-hmm. I love Terroir. It's an amazing gin. Um, and it's when I order it on bars, people kind of look at me like, you know what that is? <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I know what that is. Um, and I also try not to order my own products in bars, just so you know. Um, <laughs> uh, but I want to I want to take this idea and kind all of all these all these are different processes, and each distiller has this toolkit, if you will. And so we all take and this one's an install maceration, this one's a vapor, this one's a combination, mm-hmm. this one is an isolated distillation, this one is a, is a combination because you're going to get different effects mm-hmm. if you isolate a botanical versus co-distilling a botanical because you're going to get chemical reactions in the still between the two. So, I mean, there's no one right way. This is all about how you approach the spirit. Right. And I guess I wanted to get into your process a little bit. So you were, you tried to find, you know, a flavor or a botanical or a combination of botanicals that replicated the initial flavor. Did you? Well, I'm not going to say replicate. I I want match closely. No, I want to take a look at how historical spirits were put together. Mm -hmm. But then I want to develop a flavor profile that I personally enjoy Mm -hmm. because if I enjoy it, chances are other people are going to enjoy it. And sometimes they do and sometimes they don't. But it's my product. Mm -hmm. Uh, everything I do here in Golden Moon uh, is an instill maceration followed by, as far as botanicals, followed by a redistillation or it's a digestion, so a, a maceration under heat. And very often we'll, we'll do both of those to a spirit. Our absinthe is finished that way. It's the traditional coloring method for an absinthe. Our genope is finished that way. There's a large digestion in the piquant. 
Um, I don't, in this distillery, use any vapor distillation. It's a personal choice on the type of equipment I'm using. I prefer heavier spirits mm-hmm. and as far as flavors. Um, my spirits are very cocktail-centric, and I want the bold flavors to really stand out in a cocktail when mixed with other things, um, where a vapor distillation is going to give you a lighter flavor. Um, that's a personal preference. I have built distilleries for other people, and I've done formulas for other people where they are using vapor distillation. And in one case, I did a, a gin for a company in Asia where one of the botanicals was way in your face. And so most of what they're doing is an instill maceration. Mm-hmm. They do have a vapor basket, but the one botanical that was too heavy and too, too forward leaning in still, we put in the basket and it gave it just that touch, which is what I was looking for. Uh, th- that's inter- I, I find gin fascinating. Like I said I'm not uh, a, a gin person, so I, I have to ask a lot of questions that are that are dumb. When you are moving a, a product from in the still and as a macerated product mm-hmm. into the vapor basket, okay. how do you look at that concentration volume? Is this a, a try it and see and then? In my case, it's a try it and see. There's lots of chemical engineers, <laughs> a lot of distillers that come from from heavy technical backgrounds, whether they're Harriet, Gra- uh, Harriet Watt graduates. Um, my production manager, James, is a Harriet Watt graduate. He's got a much stronger technical background than I have. Um, there's a lot of things he can do in the lab that I can't, mm-hmm. but you know, I'm very good at using my taste of, uh, uh, my sense of taste, my sense of smell. And often, especially with raw distillates that are, that are heavy in essential oils like gin or absinthe or something, I will actually feel the spirit as well. Mm-hmm. Actually, I do that with my whiskeys as well. I tend to want to feel and smell everything. Mm-hmm. Um, I just think it's, it's better to be really, really in tune with what you're producing. Um, and I find distillers that don't do that have, have problems. I mean, I, I probably once a month have someone walk into this distillery and say, I've got a problem. Can you help me figure it out? Hmm. And in one case, quite recently, um, I looked at the guy and said, uh, what are you using for base spirit? And he goes, well, it's, it's a whiskey. It's, you know, it's, it's basically a white whiskey. You know, it's not highly rectified. And my comment to him was twofold. First of all, um, can't be gin unless it's over a certain proof under the standards of identity and B your spirit's not clean enough and you're getting heavy grainy oily flavors in there that are detracting from your final product mm. and you're going to need you know the first thing you need to do is get cleaner spirit to start with that makes sense have and, that nice clean background and his comment was you know I really want to make it myself I said that's fine as long as you got the right equipment and I think that's another great point a lot of distillers go out and they buy a still for whatever reason when they start and they ha- when they haven't finalized what they want to make and the still may not be appropriate. Um, I'm consulting on a project. Um, I can't even say where it is. Let's just say it's in Europe currently. Um, they're having stills built by Forsyth Copper Works in Scotland. They're not in Scotland. Um, they asked me for some advice and have since retained me as a consultant. And they started talking about what they wanted to do. And I started asking some questions and they didn't have answers. And I said, wait, you've already ordered your stills and put a down payment on them. They said, yeah, but we haven't finalized the design because there's a multiple year waiting list. I'm like, good. We need to have some serious discussions about what you really want to make on these stills and how you want to approach it before you finalize that still design. I mean, things as simple as do you, with them, as simple as do you want to make a light spirit or a heavy spirit? 
because that will dictate the type of condenser you're going to use. That will dictate the type of still head you're going to use. That will dictate the length and angle of the line arm or vapor line. Mm-hmm. And that's just talking basic whiskey sense. All right. And they want to do some other stuff. So the question, the next question is, are you just telling off wash? Are you just telling off uh, mass? Or, or are yeah. you just telling off neutral? That's pre-distilled. And their question was, we haven't decided yet. All right, then you're going to need to go back and look at your kettle design and look at whether or not it's going to be suitable to put solids in the still. Because if it's not, you're going to have a problem if you decide to put solids in that still. And if you're dropping three, four million dollars on big stills from Forsyth, then they're expensive. I mean, a one-ton system. The last time I quoted one out was well over two million dollars. Sounds and about right. And these guys, these guys are putting in you know what? I think they're putting in a six-ton capacity. So there's millions of dollars of copper work there. You got to get this right before you start buying stills. Yeah. Um, I, I I regularly hear of people. They, you know, well, I'm selling the still because it doesn't work for what we want. Or, you know, I'm going to have to shut down because the still isn't appropriate. You got to figure out what you want and how you're going to make it before you buy the still. Or you buy a still understanding that you're going to have to tailor your products to the equipment you have. And that goes back to my antique stills. There's, and that's one of the reasons that we've, we've gone to the type of production methods we use here is because the antique stills that I love so much are suitable for certain types of production, but not for others. Yeah. And I'm fine with that. Uh, and, and honestly, your equipment chain back to fermenters and mash tun all needs to be designed mm-hmm. for the spirit. It's not just the still. It's it's a process. Oh, yeah, uh, especially and- with whiskey with, ma- with mash or lotter tons. I mean, if, you know, if you're making a malt whiskey, you know, chances are if you're an American distiller, you're going to want to put the grain in the still. But if you're going to talk to a Scotsman or an Irishman, you're, different. You're, That's you're going to lotter. Different spirits, yeah. You're going to lotter. And so everyone understands what lottering is. The term lottering is the separation from solids, from, from liquids. Very suitable for things like a malted barley. Not really suitable for things like corn or rye, where you, it's very difficult to get the fermentable out from the solid. So, say if you're going to make a bourbon, you're probably going to want to think about putting solids in a still. If you're going to make a Scottish-style malt whiskey, you probably don't need to. But if you're ever going to go back in that other direction, the still needs to be able to handle solids, whether or not you use them. Your whole process. If you're going to if you're gonna mash for a multi-grain whiskey, you're going to need a different type of a mash vessel than if you're going to mash for malt. Mm-hmm. Unless, of course, you're putting grain in the still for your malt. Right. And if you're putting grain in the still for your malt, you're going to get very distinctly different flavors because you're distilling on grain versus off grain. Uh, last thing I want to talk about is your absinthe. Okay. Um, you know, you, you've developed these these recipes that are, are truly yours, but mm-hmm. I also know you have one of the best libraries in terms of historical so record I, for so distilleries. I've told, so I've been told. Um, how, how are you inspired by the classical recipes and how do you move them forward to create kind of a, your own personal recipe? Well... And let's talk about absinthe in particular because uh, as a little bit of background, um, I started making uh, malt whiskey uh, in, the, in 1991. Uh, we had opened – I and two friends had, had worked on opening a brewery. We got a basic permit to brew. Um, I started experimenting um, with uh, uh, what it would take to open a malt whiskey distillery back then. 
and a gentleman by the name of Fritz Maytag, who some of you may know, um, sat me down and said, wait five years. <laughs> and it was great advice. I mean, I haven't seen Fritz since. I doubt he even remembers me. But that advice was the best advice he ever could have ever given me because I went off into the corporate world and really learned how to run a business and et cetera. And I walked away from distilling for a while. Um, and by the way, that first experiment with malt whiskey was really lousy. Just so we're clear. Um, here we are 27 years later. And um, a few years after that, I was working for Ford Motor Company. I was living in Detroit. And or near Detroit. And um, I was traveling all over the world for Ford. I'd had absence in the Czech Republic, and most of it was really not a, a product I would want to drink. At that point in time, what was being produced in, in the Czech Republic wasn't even a true absinthe. Hmm. It was typically nothing more than vodka with, with wormwood macerated in it and green food coloring. <laughs> um, and so uh, I really didn't like absinthe. But what I've since learned was that the Spanish absinthe producers uh, that had French roots that left France in, in 1912 or Switzerland in 1912 or between 1912 and 1915 during the two bands set up production in Spain and most of them stayed in business until 1975. Interesting. During the, the Second Dirty War when Franco ran them out of business because he didn't like their politics. Hmm. Um, so there was an underground absinthe chain coming into the U.S. Uh, that existed until the 70s. And I've, I've seen cocktail recipes from bars that date from the early 70s in Detroit. The absence was coming through Canada, through Windsor. Um, Lucius Bevy's The Store Club Bar Book, 1955. There's still over 50 absinthe recipes in that bar book. Hmm. And that was a New York bar in the 50s. Hmm. So the absinthe was coming from Spain. Um, so when I was working for Ford, I used to junk for booze. And I'd go and I'd go to junk stores and garage sales and et cetera. And I would buy the weirdest little bottles I could find that were full, and I'd drink them. Hmm. And I came across an entire case of Spanish absinthe or absenta from about 1950. Uh, it was a brand called Absenta Argenti. Uh, and I tasted it, and I was totally blown away. And a lot of your absinthe aficionados kind of look down their nose at the mid-20th century Spanish absinthe. But I love them whenever I can find them to this day, unless hmm. they're ungodly expensive, I buy them. Um you know, they're, they're, they're sort of, in many ways, a streamlined, simpler version of the French products from the early 20th century before the ban. Um, most of the brand names can be traced to either distillers or brand owners that, that originally operated in France in the late 1800s, early 1900s. And that really inspired me. And so two weeks later, just dumb luck, I came across the first rare book on distilling I ever bought. Uh, it was an 1855 edition of the Encyclopedia, Ag uh, the Rorette Encyclopedia Agricole volume on distillation. Hmm. And it had absinthe recipes in it. And I thought to myself, I could make this stuff. The reality <laughs> is I couldn't make that stuff. I didn't have a clue what I was doing. But I started um, doing a lot of research. I was befriended by a number of, let's call them, illicit absent distillers hmm. around the world. Uh, they used to call themselves HGers. A number of them now own modern brands. Hmm. But there was a an illicit absent community functioning around the world um, of some serious geeks that uh, in some cases had family lineage to old absent brands. Um, in some cases were, were just uh, kindred spirits. Um, probably the most famous, at least here in the U.S., is Ted Bro, mm -hmm. uh, Jade Absinthe and Lucid. Um, Ted gave me advice, counsel, and wisdom. 
David Nathan Meister that owns Oxygen E, uh, the Virtual Absence Museum, et cetera. David was incredibly helpful. Uh, I had people invite me to stay in their houses in Europe and to still absinthe with them. And I really learned a lot about the way to build flavors in botanical distillates, not just absinthe. Um, and the incredible importance of running the still appropriately to deal with the different botanicals. Because an absinthe recipe or a botanical liquor liqueur recipe by itself mm. isn't going to get you there. Hmm. You run it on one still, it'll taste amazing. You run it on the same still using different procedures, it'll taste really bad. Hmm. You run it on a different still, it'll, it'll taste mediocre. So it's not just about how you build the recipes, but it's understanding the relationship between the techniques the still configuration, the botanicals themselves, the way the botanicals are processed. And it was a journey that I haven't ended. But before I created Redoux, which is the absinthe you know, um, I had about 13 years of trial, error, and experimentation. And um, I'm pretty proud of that product. Uh, we've gotten some of the top accolades in the world with that product. Um, it has a reputation in the absinthe community around the world. Um we actually were just brought into a bar called Absinthe in San Francisco, which is probably the single largest absinthe selling bar in the United States right now. Hmm. Um, and we're now their house absinthe, and I'm honored to be their house absinthe. We're not an inexpensive product, but they want a quality product. And, I mean, they're buying more absinthe per month from me than the entire Colorado market. And <laughs> they've been around a long time, and they make a lot of cocktails with absinthe. So hmm. I'm pretty flattered by that. I, I have so many questions for you about the running of a still for, for different botanicals, but unfortunately, uh, we're running out of time. So I'm going to yeah, have... We're, we're definitely over. Yeah. Uh, we're, so we're going to have to wrap this up. Steve, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for it's, coming for a visit. You know? It's been a great learning experience, and thank you for letting me do this on location. It's it's always cool to get to see where the spirits are actually made. Well, little note, um, Golden Moon Distillery, we love visitors. Uh, we love people coming. Uh um, I'm always willing to help distillers that are trying to develop a product with a few words of wisdom. Um, I am not looking for consulting clients. Just to be incredibly clear, I don't have the time. I am doing some consulting for a few people, but I am not looking for consulting clients. We're in the midst of a massive expansion here at Golden Moon. Um, we're doing some other things with our with our tasting room, which is which is a highly regarded cocktail bar, where every drop of alcohol we use in our cocktail program we make ourselves. Mm -hmm. Um, it's kind of unique. I mean, there are other people with cocktail programs, but I think ours is a little broader, a little deeper than most. Um, I just wish I, I could go. I just wish I could go there and spend less than a hundred dollars a person. Uh, but that that's a quantity. That, that's all about quantity, man. <laughs> that's all on you. It all tastes good. Uh, but thank you so much again. Uh, I appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Booze Works podcast. If you have a topic or question you'd like us to focus on for a future podcast, send us an email to podcast at boozeworks.com. Happy crafting and cheers. Cheers.